Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tonight, I will be reading Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 5 Famine, then victory, followed by dismay. I had only just time to replace the unfortunate document upon the table. Professor Liedenbrock seemed to be greatly abstracted, 
the ruling thought gave him no rest. Evidently, he had gone deeply into the matter, analytically and with profound scrutiny. He had brought all the resources of his mind to bear upon it during his walk, and he had come back to apply some new combination. He sat in his armchair, and pen in hand, he began what looked very much like algebraic formula. I followed with my eyes his trembling hands. I took count of every movement. Might not some unhoped-for result come of it? I trembled, too, very unnecessarily, since the true key was in my hands, and no other would open the secret. For three long hours, my uncle worked on without a word, without lifting his head, rubbing out, beginning again, then rubbing out again, and so on a hundred times. I knew very well that if he succeeded in setting down these letters in every possible relative position, the sentence would come out. But I also knew that twenty letters alone could form two quintillions, four hundred and thirty-two quadrillions, nine hundred and two trillions, eight billions, a hundred and seventy-six millions, six hundred and forty thousand combinations. Now here were 132 letters in this sentence, and these 132 letters would give a number of different sentences, each made up of at least 133 figures, a number which passed far beyond all calculation or conception. So I felt reassured as far as regarded this heroic method of solving the difficulty. But time was passing away. Night came on, the street noise ceased, my uncle, bending over his task, noticed nothing, not even Martha half opening the door. He heard not a sound, not even that excellent woman saying, Will not monsieur take any supper tonight? And poor Martha had to go away unanswered. As for me, after long resistance, I was overcome by sleep and fell off at the end of the sofa, while Uncle Liedenbrock went on calculating and rubbing out his calculations. When I woke next morning, that indefatigable worker was still at his post. His red eyes, his pale complexion, his hair tangled between his feverish fingers, the red spots on his cheeks, revealed his desperate struggle with impossibilities, and the weariness of spirit the mental wrestlings he must have undergone all through that unhappy night. To tell the plain truth, I pitied him. In spite of the reproaches which I considered I had a right to lay upon him, a certain feeling of compassion was beginning to gain upon me. The poor man was so entirely taken up with his one idea that he had even forgotten how to get angry. All the strength of his feelings was concentrated upon one point alone, and as their usual vent was closed, it was to be feared lest extreme tension should give rise to an explosion sooner or later. I might with a word have loosened the screw of the steel vice that was crushing his brain, but that word I would not speak. Yet I was not an ill-natured fellow. Why was I dumb at such a crisis? 
Why so insensible to my uncle's interests? No, no, I repeated. I shall not speak it. He would insist upon going. Nothing on earth could stop him. His imagination is a volcano. And to do that which other geologists have never done, he would risk his life. I will preserve silence. I will keep the secret which mere chance has revealed to me. To discover it would be to kill Professor Liedenbrock. Let him find it out himself if he can. I will never have it laid to my door that I led him to his destruction. Having formed this resolution, I folded my arms and waited. But I had not reckoned upon one little incident that turned up a few hours later. When our good Martha wanted to go to market, she found the door locked. The big key was gone. Who could have taken it out? Assuredly, it was my uncle when he returned the night before from his hurried walk. Was this done on purpose, or was it a mistake? Did he want to reduce us by famine? This seemed like going rather too far. What, should Martha and I be victims of a position of things in which we had not the slightest interest? It was a fact that a few years before this, while my uncle was working at his greatest classification of minerals, he went 48 hours without eating, and all his household was obliged to share in this scientific fast. As for me, what I remember is that I got severe cramps in my stomach, which hardly suited the constitution of a hungry, growing lad. Now it appeared to me as if breakfast was going to be wanting, just as supper had been the night before. Yet I resolved to be a hero, and not to be conquered by the pangs of hunger. Martha took it very seriously, and, poor woman, was very much distressed. As for me, the impossibility of leaving the house distressed me a good deal more, and for a very good reason. A caged lover's feelings may easily be imagined. My uncle went on working. His imagination went off rambling into the ideal world of combinations. He was far away from earth and really far away from earthly once. About noon, hunger began to stimulate me severely. Martha had, without thinking any harm, cleared out the larder the night before, so that now there was nothing left in the house. Still, I held out. I made it a point of honor. Two o'clock struck. This was becoming ridiculous. Worse than that. Unbearable. I began to say to myself that I was exaggerating the importance of the document, that my uncle would surely not believe in it, that he would set it down as a mere puzzle, that if it came to the worst, we should lay violent hands on him and keep him at home if he thought of venturing on the expedition, that after all, he might himself discover the key of the cipher, and that then I should be clear of the mere expense of my involuntary abstinence. These reasons seemed excellent to me, though on the night before I should have rejected them with indignation. I even went so far as to condemn myself for my absurdity and having waited so long, and I finally resolved to let it all out. I was therefore meditating a proper introduction to the matter, so as to not seem too abrupt, when the professor jumped up, clapped on his hat, and prepared to go out.
Surely he was not going out to shut us in again. No, never. Uncle, I cried. He seemed not to hear me. Uncle Liedenbrock, I cried, lifting up my voice. I, he answered like a man suddenly waking. Uncle, that key. What key? The door key? No, no, I cried. The key of the document. The professor stared at me over his spectacles. No doubt he saw something unusual in my countenance, for he laid hold of my arm and speechlessly questioned me with his eyes. Yes, never was a question more forcibly put. I nodded my head up and down. He shook his pityingly, as if he was dealing with a lunatic. I gave a more affirmative gesture. His eyes glistened and sparkled with live fire. His hand shook threateningly. This mute conversation at such a momentous crisis would have riveted the attention of the most indifferent. And the fact really was that I dared not speak now, so intense was the excitement, for fear lest my uncle should smother me in his first joyful embraces. But he became so urgent that I was at last compelled to answer. Yes, that key. Chance. What is it that you're saying? He shouted with indescribable emotion. There, read it, I said, presenting a sheet of paper on which I had written. But there is nothing in this, he answered, crumpling the paper. No, nothing until you proceed to read from the end to the beginning. I had not finished my sentence when the professor broke out into a cry, nay, a roar. A new revelation burst in upon him. He was transformed. Aha, clever Sacknesum, he cried. You had first written out your sentence the wrong way. And darting upon the paper with eyes bedimmed and voice choked with emotion, he read the whole document from the last letter to the first. It was conceived in the following terms. Descend, bold traveller, into the crater of the yokel of Sneffels which the shadow of the Scartarus touches before the Kalends of July, and you will attain the centre of the earth, which I have done, Arna Sacknesum. In reading this, my uncle gave a spring as if he had touched a Leiden jar. His audacity, his joy, and his convictions were magnificent to behold. He came and he went. He seized his head between both his hands, He pushed the chairs out of their places. He piled up his books, incredible as it may seem. He rattled his precious nodules of flints together. He sent a kick there, a thump, here. At last, his nerves calmed down, and like a man exhausted by too lavish an expenditure of vital power, he sank back, exhausted, into his armchair. What o'clock is it? he asked after a few moments of silence. Three o'clock, I replied. Is it really? The dinner hour is past, and I did not know. I'm half dead with hunger. Come on. And after dinner? Well? After dinner, pack up my trunk. What? I cried. And yours, replied the indefatigable professor, entering the dining room. Chapter 6 
exciting discussions about an unparalleled enterprise. At these words, a cold shiver ran through me. Yet I controlled myself. I even resolved to put a good face upon it. Scientific arguments alone could have any weight with Professor Liedenbrock. Now there were good ones against the practicability of such a journey. Penetrate to the centre of the earth. What nonsense. But I kept my dialectic battery in reserve for a suitable opportunity. And I interested myself in the prospect of my dinner, which was not yet forthcoming. It is no use to tell of the rage and imprecations of my uncle before the empty table. Explanations were given, Martha was set at liberty, ran off to the market, and did her part so well that in an hour afterwards my hunger was appeased and I was able to return to the contemplation of the gravity of the situation. During the entire dinner my uncle was almost merry. He indulged in some of those learned jokes that never do anybody any harm. Dessert over, he beckoned me into his study. I obeyed. He sat at one end of his table, I at the other. Axel, said he very mildly, you are a very ingenious young man. You have done me a splendid service. At a moment when, wearied out with the struggle, I was going to abandon the contest. Where should I have lost myself? None can tell. Never, my lad, shall I forget it. And you shall have your share in the glory to which your discovery will lead. Oh, come, thought I. He's in a good way. Now is the time for discussing that same glory. Before all things, my uncle resumed, I enjoin you to preserve the most inviolable secrecy, you understand. There are quite a few in the scientific world who envy my success and many would be ready to undertake this enterprise, to whom our return should be the first news of it. Do you really think there are many people bold enough? said I. Certainly. Who would hesitate to acquire such renown? If that document were divulged, a whole army of geologists would be ready to rush into the footsteps of Arna Sacknesum. I don't feel so very sure of that, uncle, I replied for we have no proof of the authenticity of this document. What? Not of the book inside which we have discovered it? Granted, I admit that Sacknusum may have written these lines, but does it follow that he has really accomplished such a journey? And may it not be that this old parchment is intended to mislead? I almost regretted having uttered this last word, which dropped from me in an unguarded moment. The professor bent his shaggy brows, and I feared I had seriously compromised my own safety. Happily, no great harm came of it. A smile flitted across the lip of my severe companion, and he answered, That is what we shall see. Ah, said I, rather put out. But do let me exhaust all the possible objections against this document. Speak, my boy, don't be afraid. You are quite at liberty to express your opinions. You are no longer my nephew only, but my colleague. Pray go on. Well, in the first place, I wish to ask, what are this Yokel, this Snaffles, and this Scarterus, names which I have never heard before? Nothing easier. 
I received not long ago a map from my friend Augustus Peterman of Leipzig. Nothing could be more apropos. Take down the third atlas in the second shelf of the large bookcase, Series Z, Plate 4. I rose, and with the help of such precise instructions, could not fail to find the required atlas. My uncle opened it and said, Here is one of the best maps of Iceland, that of Handersen, and I believe this will solve the first of our difficulties. I bent over the map. You see this volcanic island, said the professor. Observe that all the volcanoes are called yokels, a word that means glacier in Icelandic. And under the high latitude of Iceland, nearly all the active volcanoes discharge through beds of ice. Hence, this term of yokel is applied to all the eruptive mountains in Iceland. Very good, said I. But what of Sneffels? I was hoping that this question would be unanswerable, but I was mistaken. My uncle replied, Follow my finger along the west coast of Iceland. Do you see Reykjavik, the capital? You do. Well, ascend the innumerable fjords that indent those sea-beaten shores and stop at the 65th degree of latitude. What do you see there? I see a peninsula looking like a thigh bone with a knee bone at the end of it. A very fair comparison, my lad. Now, do you see anything upon that knee bone? Yes, a mountain rising out of the sea. Right, that is Snaefell. It is a mountain 5,000 feet high, one of the most remarkable in the world, if its crater leads down to the centre of the earth. But that is impossible, I said, shrugging my shoulders, and disgusted at such a ridiculous supposition. Impossible? said the professor severely. And why, pray? Because this crater is evidently filled with lava and burning rocks, and therefore... But suppose it is an extinct volcano. Extinct? Yes. The number of active volcanoes on the surface of the globe is at the present time only about 300. But there is a very much larger number of extinct ones. Now, Snaefell is one of these. Since historic times, there has been but one eruption of this mountain, that of 1219. From that time, it has quietened down more and more, and now it is no longer reckoned among active volcanoes. To such positive statements, I could make no reply. I therefore took refuge in other dark passages of the document. What is the meaning of this Scartarus, and what have the calends of July to do with it? My uncle took a few minutes to consider. For one short moment I felt a ray of hope, speedily to be extinguished, for he soon answered thus, What is darkness to you is light to me. This proves the ingenious care with which Sacknesum guarded and defined his discovery. Sneffels, or Snaefell, has several craters. It was therefore necessary to point out which of these leads to the centre of the globe. What did the Icelandic sage do? He observed that at the approach of the calends of July, that is to say in the last days of June, one of the peaks, called Scartarus, flung its shadow down the mouth of that particular crater. 
and he committed that fact to his document. Could there possibly have been a more exact guide? As soon as we have arrived at the summit of Snaefell, we shall have no hesitation as to the proper road to take. Decidedly, my uncle had answered every one of my objections. I saw that his position on the old parchment was impregnable. I therefore ceased to press him upon that part of the subject, and, as above all things he must be convinced, I passed on to scientific objections, which, in my opinion, were far more serious. Well then, I said, I am forced to admit that Sacknusum's sentence is clear and leaves no room for doubt. I will even allow that the document bears every mark and evidence of authenticity. That learned philosopher did get to the bottom of Snaefell. He has seen the shadow of Scartarus touch the edge of the crater before the calends of July. He may even have heard the legendary stories told in his day about that crater reaching to the center of the earth. But as for reaching it himself, as for performing the journey and returning, if he ever went, I say no, he never, never did that. Now for your reason, said my uncle, ironically. All the theories of science demonstrate such a feat to be impracticable. The theories say that, do they? replied the professor, in the tone of a meek disciple. Oh, unpleasant theories. How the theories will hinder us, won't they? I saw that he was only laughing at me, but I went on all the same. Yes, it is perfectly well known that the internal temperature rises one degree for every 70 feet in depth. Now, admitting this proportion to be constant, and the radius of the earth being 1,500 leagues, there must be a temperature of 360,032 degrees at the center of the earth. Therefore, all the substances that compose the body of this earth must exist there in a state of incandescent gas. For the metals that most resist the action of heat, gold and platinum, and the hardest rocks, can never be either solid or liquid under such a temperature. I have therefore good reason for asking if it is possible to penetrate through such a medium. So, Axel, it is the heat that troubles you. Of course it is. Were we to reach a depth of 30 miles, we should have arrived at the limit of the terrestrial crust, for there the temperature will be more than 2,372 degrees. Are you afraid of being put into a state of fusion? I will leave you to decide that question, I answered rather sullenly. This is my decision, replied Professor Liedenbrock, putting on one of his grandest airs. Neither you nor anybody else knows with any certainty what is going on in the interior of this globe, since not the twelve thousandth part of its radius is known. Science is eminently perfectible, and every new theory is soon routed by a newer. Was it not always believed until Fourier that the temperature of the interplanetary spaces decreased perpetually? And is it not known at the present time that the greatest cold of the ethereal regions is never lower than 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit? Why should it not be the same with internal heat? Why should it not, at a certain depth, attain an impassable limit? instead of rising to such a point as to fuse the most infusible metals. 
As my uncle was now taking his stand upon hypotheses, of course, there was nothing to be said. While I will tell you that true savants, among them Poisson, have demonstrated that if a heat of 360,000 degrees existed in the interior of the globe, the fiery gases arising from the fused matter would acquire an elastic force that the crust of the earth would be unable to resist and that it would explode like the plates of a bursting boiler. That is Poisson's opinion, my uncle, nothing more. Granted, but it is likewise the creed adopted by other distinguished geologists that the interior of the globe is neither gas nor water, nor any of the heaviest minerals known, for in none of these cases would the earth weigh what it does. Oh, with figures you may prove anything. But is it the same with facts? Is it not known that the number of volcanoes has diminished since the first days of creation? And if there is central heat, may we not thence conclude that it is in process of diminution? My good uncle, if you will enter into the legion of speculation, I can discuss the matter no longer. But I have to tell you that the highest names have come to the support of my views. Do you remember a visit paid to me by the celebrated chemist Humphrey Davy in 1825? Not at all, for I was not born until 19 years afterwards. Well, Humphrey Davy did call upon me on his way through Hamburg. We were long engaged in discussing, among other problems, the hypothesis of the liquid structure of the terrestrial nucleus. We were agreed that it could not be in a liquid state, for a reason which science has never been able to confute. What is that reason? I said, rather astonished. Because this liquid mass would be subject, like the ocean, to the lunar attraction, and therefore twice every day there would be internal tides, which, upheaving the terrestrial crust, would cause periodical earthquakes. Yet it is evident that the surface of the globe has been subject to the action of fire, I replied, and it is quite reasonable to suppose that the external crust cooled down first, while the heat took refuge down to the centre. Quite a mistake, my uncle answered. The earth has been heated by combustion on its surface, that is all. Its surface was composed of a great number of metals, such as potassium and sodium, which have the peculiar property of igniting at the mere contact with air and water. These metals kindled when the atmospheric vapours fell in rain upon the soil, and by and by, when the waters penetrated into the fissures of the crust of the earth, they broke out into fresh combustion with explosions and eruptions. Such was the cause of the numerous volcanoes at the origin of the earth. Upon my word, this is a very clever hypothesis, I exclaimed, rather in spite of myself, and which Humphrey Davy demonstrated to me by a simple experiment. He formed a small ball of the metals that I have named, and which was a very fair representation of our globe. Whenever he caused a fine dew of rain to fall upon its surface, it heaved up into little monticules. It became oxidized and formed miniature mountains. A crater broke open at one of its summits. The eruption took place and communicated to the whole ball such a heat that it could not be held in the hand. In truth, 
I was beginning to be shaken by the professor's arguments, besides which he gave additional weight to them by his usual ardor and fervent enthusiasm. You see, Axel, he added, the condition of the terrestrial nucleus has given rise to various hypotheses among geologists. There's no proof at all for this internal heat. My opinion is that there is no such thing. It cannot be. Besides, we shall see for ourselves, and, like Arne Sacknussen, we shall know exactly what to hold as truth concerning this grand question. Very well, we shall see, I replied, feeling myself carried off by his contagious enthusiasm. Yes, we shall see, that is, if it is possible to see anything there. And why not? May we not depend upon electric phenomena to give us light? May we not even expect light from the atmosphere, the pressure of which may render it luminous as we approach the centre? Yes, yes, said I, that is possible too. It is certain, exclaimed my uncle in a tone of triumph. But silence, do you hear me? Silence upon the whole subject, and let no one get ahead of us in this design of discovering the centre of the earth. Chapter 7. A Woman's Courage Thus ended this memorable seance. That conversation threw me into a fever. I came out of my uncle's study as if I had been stunned, and as if there was not enough air in all the streets of Hamburg to put me right again. I therefore made for the banks of the Elbe, where the steamer lands her passengers, which forms the communication between the city and the Hamburg railway. Was I convinced of the truth of what I had heard? Had I not bent under the iron rule of Professor Lidenbrock? Was I to believe him in earnest in his intention to penetrate to the centre of this massive globe? Had I been listening to the mad speculations of a lunatic or to the scientific conclusions of a lofty genius? Where did truth stop? Where did error begin? I was all adrift among a thousand contradictory hypotheses but I could not lay hold of one. Yet I remembered that I had been convinced, although now my enthusiasm was beginning to cool down. But I felt a desire to start at once and not to lose time and courage by calm reflection. I had at that moment quite courage enough to strap my knapsack to my shoulders and start. But I must confess that in another hour, this unnatural excitement abated. My nerves became unstrung and from the depths of the abysses of this earth, I ascended to its surface again. It is quite absurd, I cried. There's no sense about it. No sensible young man should for a moment entertain such a proposal. The whole thing is non-existent. I have had a bad night. I have been dreaming of horrors. But I had followed the banks of the Elbe and passed the town. After passing the port too, I had reached the Altena Road. I was led by a presentiment, soon to be realized, for shortly I espied my little Groiben, bravely returning with her light step to Hamburg. Groiben, I cried from far off. The young girl stopped, rather frightened perhaps to hear her name called after her on the high road. Ten yards more and I had joined her. Axel, she cried, surprised. What, have you come to meet me? Is this why you are here? When she looked upon me, 
Groibin could not fail to see the uneasiness and distress of my mind. What is the matter, she said, holding out her hand. What is the matter, Groibin? I cried. In a couple of minutes, she was fully informed of the state of the affairs. For a time, she was silent. Did her heart palpitate as mine did? I don't know about that, but I know that her hand did not tremble in mine. We went on a hundred yards without speaking. At last, she said, Axel, my dear Groban, that will be a splendid journey. I gave a bound at these words. Yes, Axel, a journey worthy of the nephew of a savant. It is a good thing for a man to be distinguished by some great enterprise. What, Groban, wouldn't you dissuade me from such an undertaking? No, my dear Axel, and I would willingly go with you, but a poor girl would only be in your way. Is that quite true? It is true. Ah, women and young girls, how incomprehensible are your feminine hearts. When you are not the timidest, you are the bravest of creatures. Reason has nothing to do with your actions. What, did this child encourage me in such an expedition? Would she not be afraid to join it herself? And she was driving me to it, one whom she loved. I was disconcerted, and if I must tell the whole truth, I was ashamed. Groibin, we will see whether you will say the same thing tomorrow. Tomorrow, dear Axel, I will say what I say today. Groibin and I, hand in hand, but in silence, pursued our way. The emotions of that day were breaking my heart. After all, I thought, the calends of July are a long way off, and between this and then, many things may take place that will cure my uncle of his desire to travel underground. It was night when we arrived at the house. I expected to find all quiet there, my uncle in bed, as was his custom, and Martha giving her last touches with the feather brush. But I had not taken into account the professor's impatience. I found him shouting and working himself up amid a crowd of porters and messengers who were all depositing various loads in the passage. Our old servant was at her wit's end. Come, Axel, come, you miserable wretch, my uncle cried from as far off as he could see me. Your boxes are not packed, and my papers are not arranged. Where's the key of my carpet bag, and what have you done with my gaiters? I stood, thunderstruck. My voice failed. Scarcely could my lips utter the words. Are we really going? Of course, you unhappy boy. Could I have dreamed that you would have gone out for a walk instead of hurrying your preparations forward? Are we to go? I asked again with sinking hopes. Yes, the day after tomorrow, early. I could hear no more. I fled for refuge into my own little room. All hope was now at an end. My uncle had been all the morning making purchases of a part of the tools and apparatus required for this desperate undertaking. The passage was encumbered with rope ladders, knotted cords, torches, flasks, grappling hooks, alpenstocks, pickaxes, iron-shod sticks, enough to load ten men. I spent an awful night. Next morning I was called early. I had quite decided I would not open the door. But how was I to resist the sweet voice that was always music to my ears, saying, 
my dear Axel. I came out of my room. I thought my pale countenance and my red and sleepless eyes would work upon Groiben's sympathies and change her mind. Ah, my dear Axel, she said, I see you are better. A night's rest has done you good. Done me good, I exclaimed. I rushed to the mirror. Well, in fact, I did look better than I had expected. I could hardly believe my own eyes. Axel, she said, I have had a long talk with my guardian. He is a bold philosopher, a man of immense courage, and you must remember that his blood flows in your veins. He has confided to me his hopes, his plans, and why and how he hopes to attain his object. He will no doubt succeed. My dear Axel, it is a grand thing to devote yourself to science. What honour will fall upon Herr Liedenbrock, and so be reflected upon his companion? When you return, Axel, you will be a man, his equal, free to speak and to act independently, and free to... The dear girl only finished this sentence by blushing. Her words revived me. Yet I refused to believe we should start. I drew Groiben into the professor's study. Uncle, is it true that we are to go? Why do you doubt? Well, I don't doubt, I said, not to vex him. But I ask, what need is there to hurry? Time, time, flying with irreparable rapidity. But it is only the 16th of May, until the end of June. What, you monument of ignorance? Do you think you can get to Iceland in a couple of days? If you had not deserted me like a fool, I should have taken you to the Copenhagen office, to Lifender and Co., and you would have learned then that there is only one trip every month from Copenhagen to Reykjavik on the 22nd. Well, well, if we waited for the 22nd of June, we should be too late to see the shadow of Scartaris touch the crater of Snaefell. Therefore, we must get to Copenhagen as fast as we can to secure our passage. Go and pack up. There was no reply to this. I went up to my room. Groiben followed me. She undertook to pack up all the things necessary for my voyage. She was no more moved than if I had been starting for a little trip to Lübeck or Heligoland. Her little hands moved without haste. She talked quietly. She supplied me with sensible reasons for our exhibition. She delighted me, and yet I was angry with her. Now and then I felt I ought to break out into a passion, but she took no notice and went on her way as methodically as ever. Finally, the last strap was buckled. I came downstairs. All that day, the philosophical instrument makers and the electricians kept coming and going. Martha was distracted. Is Master mad? she asked. I nodded my head. And he's going to take you with him? I nodded again. Where to? I pointed my finger downward. Down into the cellar? cried the old servant. No, I said. Lower down than that. Night came, but I knew nothing about the lapse of time. Tomorrow morning at six precisely, my uncle decreed, we start. At ten o'clock I fell upon my bed, a dead lump of inert matter. All through the night terror had hold of me. I spent it dreaming of abysses. I was a prey to delirium. I felt myself grasped by the professor's sinewy hand, dragged along hurled down, shattered into little bits. 
I dropped down unfathomable precipices with the accelerating velocity of bodies falling through space. My life had become an endless fall. I awoke at five with shattered nerves, trembling and weary. I came downstairs. My uncle was at table, devouring his breakfast. I stared at him with horror and disgust. But Dare Groyben was there, so I said nothing, and could eat nothing. At half past five, there was a rattle of wheels outside. A large carriage was there to take us to the Altenor railway station. It was soon piled up with my uncle's multifarious preparations. Where's your box, he cried. It is ready, I replied with faltering voice. Then make haste down, or we shall lose the train. It was now manifestly impossible to maintain the struggle against destiny. I went up again to my room, and rolling my portmanteaus downstairs, I darted after him. At that moment, my uncle was solemnly investing Groyben with the reins of government. She was as calm and collected as was her wont. She kissed her guardian, but could not restrain a tear in touching my cheek with her gentle lips. Groyben, I murmured. Go, my dear Axel, go. I am now your betrothed, and when you come back, I will be your wife. I pressed her in my arms and took my place in the carriage. Martha and the young girl, standing at the door, waved their last farewell. Then the horses, roused by the driver's whistling, darted off at a gallop on the road to Altona. Good night.